I will assume that nobody knows much about capital markets and bond markets and the operation of all those tools. There is a great deal of nonsense online that suggests you don't need any of these things that you see in financial markets and it is all a big capitalist conspiracy run by, you know, choose your villain. Is it the Americans? Is it the Russians? Who is it that you don't like at the moment? There seems to be some conspiracy theory that sort of necessitates the global financial system in any version of it at any given point in time. So I think it's a legitimate question to address what are capital markets for and what are we trying to achieve by having these structured markets? What is any market for, really? Why, in if we were living in a village? Technically, I am living in a village. It's in the middle of Hammersmith, but it's called Brackenberry Village. I think it bumps up the property prices by 10% if you call something a village, yeah? It's not a village, there are no goats, there are no cows, there is nothing. So how is this a village? I don't know. The English have broad understanding of what a village is. If we were living in a village, would it be sensible that we go to each other's houses and pick up whatever it is that we make in our own houses? Or would it make sense for us to meet in a central marketplace, say, twice or three times a week? Why would it be better to meet in, in the central square a few times a week as opposed to running to each other's houses? It might create a personal level of commitment where you feel obligated to buy the stuff that the person is making in their house because it is not proper to walk in, look at something, decide you don't like it and walk out. It is possible that people produce stuff within, the, within their own location. And it would be possible that you visit that location in order to do a deal, purchase that stuff, or sell your own or pick up theirs. So it's not that it cannot be done. The problem is it is not efficient for a variety of reasons. It could be the hassle of going back and forth between multiple locations at different points in order to select what you need. Because presumably when you're going shopping, you cannot be catered for by the stuff that one single person or one single farm sells at any given point. So it would generate a great deal of hassle and it would waste quite a lot of time for the person trying to do the shopping or trying to do their business deals. Also, the personal element that you might feel obligated or it might not be polite or whatever kind of cultural baggage comes in transactions from the places that anybody's from might inhibit the ability of people to find the best prices for the best types of products. People work this out since Babylon, right? Three, five thousand years ago, right? They worked it out even before you had kind of established settlements of, of any distinction, before you had big cities, before you had anything that resembles modernity. The idea of a village market allows people to compare products between different suppliers, select which one is best, and also compare prices. So it offers transparency in the value and the price, and it provides efficiencies in terms of trouble, hassle, travel, and all that. 
So it makes it easier both for the producers of the various goods to be in the, sa in the same place and for the buyers of those goods. This has been happening since the dawn of time. There's nothing particularly exciting about this. It's very normal. Why would we then not try to extend that facility from marketplaces that have to do with goods to marketplaces that have to do with services or other types of products that are immaterial. So the whole point be behind financial markets, capital markets, stock markets, all of these things, is to give the same efficiencies and the same transparency for product and price that one would get by going to a village marketplace in a kind of prehistoric scenario. It's just that now you do it with computers and smartphones as opposed to doing it with kind of donkeys and slaves. <laughs> but now we're all slaves to finance, so I'm guessing the result is the same. What types of people, what types of entities engage in these markets? Well, crucially, governments. The governments themselves do a great deal of transactions in capital markets. How do you think governments get money for themselves? Governments raise money in the markets all the time by selling various types of debt instruments. You can buy a national savings certificate, which is an investment product here. You can go to the post office and you can buy one. It means that the UK government is borrowing money from you and gives it back to you, plus some interest at a determined point in time. But instead of this happening on a bilateral basis, it's, you know, individual going to the post office and trying to get one of those, these things happen on a wholesale way in the big markets where multiple participants come together in order to find these things. So governments are there, local authorities are there, also companies are there, and companies participate in these types of markets in two ways. There are markets for shares, where you have the opportunity to become a shareholder, a part owner in a business by purchasing a part of that business. And there are also markets for debt. And in the same way that the governments sell their debt, or you can make a loan to the government and then get it back, you can do the same thing with corporates. The whole point of having financial markets is to allow the buyers to meet the sellers. And who are the buyers and the sellers here? In this domain, you've got people with an excess of money and people with a need for finance. The people with the excess of money could be sovereign wealth funds. You know, the people who run on behalf of governments national resources. Uh, in Norway, they've got like a big sovereign wealth fund because these guys produce oil and gas, so they generate a lot of money that then they need to invest somehow. Pension funds that get a lot of money from the people who contribute towards their pensions and they collect that money, they cannot just keep that money in a standard bank account. They need to invest that money somehow to secure it for the future and to make sure that it generates an adequate return so they can pay then pensions to the people when they reach retirement. So they, these are the people who have accumulated money and they need something to do with it. It could be that they are personal savers as well. 
It could be that it's all of you who put your money into savings accounts in the banks, and then the banks have got all this money and they're looking to invest it somewhere profitably. And on the other side, you've got the rest of business that needs to be financed in order to work. Now, when we come to the point of why would a business need financing, it's possible that a business that operates profitably keeps the profits that it makes and then reinvests them into the business. But that suggests a very slow rate of growth. If I want to say, you know, in my own business, I have certain limits as to what I can produce and what I can do. And I'm earning money from what people pay me. I, instead of kind of spending that money, I could choose to keep it in the business and slowly grow, get better computers, get more powerful equipment, get licenses for software that accelerate my process, eventually get somebody to help me create the back offices. But if I already know where I'm going, I could try and accelerate that process by getting the money in advance. So if I know that if people pay me to produce a podcast, right, and my capacity is to do one podcast a week, but if I had three people to help me, then I could do a podcast a day. If I could hire these three people today, then I could increase my uh, output by this much, which would be great. So I need to raise that money to allow me to expand. So now I am somebody in need of funding. So I need to meet up with the people who have an excess of funding to allow me to do this. A small business is not going to raise that money from capital markets. A small business is going to raise that money from a traditional retail bank when you go and ask for a business loan or is going to bring in an investor that makes a loan directly or purchases shares and becomes a part owner in the business and hopefully participates in the success of the business in the future. But the investor who gives in the loan or the bank that gives the retail, uh, the business loan on a retail level, they will need to get that money somewhere. So perhaps it's the people upstream that will need to participate in one of these big markets to raise the money. So say NatWest will be happy to give me a 10,000 pound loan but because NatWest has made thousands of these £10,000 loans, needs to raise the money from somewhere. It cannot necessarily use the money that it's taking from its depositors or not fully. So it might need to deal with other banks in these markets to do bigger level investments or borrow the money themselves to be able to finance those activities. All this is perfectly normal and everybody makes money somehow. I mean, there's a cost involved in any of these transactions but everybody gets the chance to do what they want to do and they are able to do this because in the context of a marketplace, they can meet enough people to come across somebody who will give them what they want in terms and conditions that they can accept. If we were not dealing with marketplaces where a lot of people are going around looking for partners to do stuff, we would still be able to do business, but it would be a lot slower. Because if we were looking to invest in something, instead of being able to instantly purchase shares, for instance, in the London Stock Exchange, we would need to manually get in touch with each individual public company and ask them if they've got some shares available to sell. Or we would need to somehow find people that were already shareholders that might be willing to give us the shares. 
So the difficulty in discovering where the money is for us to get in touch and then negotiate the terms and conditions would make things a lot more difficult, would slow things down, and it would result in lower growth rates, lower dynamism in the economy. So the people who are telling you very simplistically that we managed to do all these things in the past, and we managed to have operating economies in, in different historical eras without the capitalist infrastructure that supports us today. They are correct. Where they are not correct is the fact that the economy back then was a lot slower and a lot smaller. So if we want to keep a modern economy at the levels that we have it now, is what we used to and what defines our experience, then we need to have these capital markets where these things happen. Could we live without them? Yes, we could, but our lives would be very, very different. Your everyday experience would be very, very different if your parents needed to send you money and the money took three weeks to arrive instead of three seconds. I have a tutor for my kid. He's a French boy that lives in Barcelona and he's doing math classes. Why? Because my level of math is probably, you know, age six. From the moment that we stopped counting with our fingers, it was too much for me. So I'm not able to help my kids with math in the slightest. Therefore, we need somebody. But how can this guy from Barcelona do this business he can because he is not concerned about getting paid for his work of course he can do it because we have the technology that allows for this remote delivery and they can have their classes on zoom meetings and all the rest of it right i'm not talking about this what i'm talking about is the transactional part would you agree to give private tuition if you would be paid by some sort of bank transfer that would take three, four weeks to arrive and when you would lose half the money in transaction fees. You wouldn't. The, the, cost or the cost and the speed of the transaction is a huge part of the decision to do business. Why don't I do business with clients in Greece? Because the banks are extortionate in their rates so when they try to pay me, they lose money. I lose money when they transfer the money. It takes forever. The tax implications are horrific. There's a great deal of paperwork behind. The hassle is such. It means that I would need to increase my prices by about 20% to make sure that I get the same value as working for an English client. This is an economy at a different level. They don't have that much money to begin with. So if I'm trying to do a deal with a client who can hardly afford our prices here, and then they need to pay a 20% premium to deal with all the hassle, the deal simply does not get done. So I think this demonstrates easily how difficulty and costs, both in time and in money for transactions, means that the transactions are less likely to happen. If that was the case, we wouldn't be able to hire the guy in Spain 
he would lose out we would lose out because probably we wouldn't be able to find somebody here or the people here would be a lot more expensive so we wouldn't do it so the overall effect is it wouldn't happen the money wouldn't change hands less activity would be registered everybody loses so we need modern capital markets in order to facilitate this and to bring all these actors that we've got in those markets to quickly meet each other, get the deals done, extract as much value out of this system as we possibly can. One of the immediate effects of all of this is that it increases liquidity, as we say, where more people participate, more money is available. And a modern economy is a combination of money, time, and the availability of the tools. This is a little bit difficult to understand from the point of view of a consumer. Because for if you're dealing as an, an employee or as a consumer, these concepts are static. They pay you your salary every month. You got that money to spend till the end of the month. You pay your rent. None of these things are flexible. The times for the payments are preset. The amounts are not flexible. So for you, money is a more static concept. For the bank, money is not a static concept. Because what's important for the money, for the bank, when it's making a loan or when it participates in those markets, is not so much the amount of the deal, are the terms and conditions of the deal. If I want to buy a car, it is equally important what is the price of the car and the availability and cost of finance. Because if I can buy a car for £30,000, but I get a three-year interest-free loan, that is a much better deal than getting a different car for 25000 that I need to pay up front. I'm not suggesting that the other car is less expensive. No, it's still more expensive. But for me, it might be a better deal because I don't have £25,000 to pay up front. So the idea of installments spread over three years at no additional cost is actually great. Plus, with the rate of inflation we've got now, you know, this probably eats at the value of my repayment. So the later repayments in three years' time are actually worth a lot less than the initial repayments right now. So in a way, it might be that this is going to end up working out cheaper than the 25000 car that I could buy right now. So imagine this on a bigger scale. When a government is buying financial products or is selling financial products, the terms and conditions of those are extremely important. This is why discussions on state debt and the level of state debt are usually meaningful. So they're saying that the Americans recently, well, recently, this happens all the time, right? So, you know, people could be listening to a recording of this in 10 years' time, and it will be the same story. The Americans perpetually fail to agree on the debt ceiling for the government, because this is something that needs to be legislated over there. The amount of money that the government can borrow. So unless they pass legislation that increases that limit, if they're getting close to it, they run into danger because they, they might actually go bankrupt. So if the law does not allow the government to borrow money up till a certain level, right, they go there, when they reach that limit, it's against the law to borrow any more money. What does that mean? 
they cannot actually raise any more money, so they need to spend with what they have available something they need to stop doing. Last time this happened in the US, they had to fire all the street cleaners and the police and all of that stuff because they couldn't afford to pay them anymore till they had an increase in that ability to borrow. So effectively, they go bust. So when you come and say, America has a debt running in trillions of dollars, that sounds like a big, scary amount, but it's meaningless because most of the time, it's the type of debt they never have to pay back. And why don't they have to pay it back? Because the interest rates are so low, they can keep it forever. If you could take a £100,000 loan at zero interest, would you take it? Yes. Yes, of course you would take it. You would be crazy not to. Not only you would take it, by the time you repay it, it's going to be worth a lot less because of inflation. So you win big time because you got that money. You got the value with current prices today. So you can utilize it today. And when you give it back, it's going to be a lot less. So the only thing you have to think about is if you just spend it on parting, then maybe if you have to repay it back in 10 years time, you won't have any and then you get in trouble. But it's a no brainer that it's basically money you don't have to give back. And if you have the assurance that you can refinance this, you can extend the loan for another 10-year period at zero interest rate again, it is free money. So to say that a young person has got £100,000 in debt sounds extraordinary and it sounds very alarming till, of course, you hear that there's no interest attached to that debt and they can roll it over forever. So America does not have a debt problem. Because the interest that they pay on their debt is very low. So it is not the same as anybody's personal finances. Money and time and the availability to get credit and extend that credit is all that what matters on the level of financial markets. So we need to break out of an understanding of value as simply amounts and to think value as this interplay between money and time and credit. Yeah. But I, you know, I will agree that these are difficult concepts to get your head around and they're very distinct from the way we understand money for ourselves and our personal finances. And also we are subjected to this constant propaganda by politicians who are using the numbers to make specific points that confuse everybody. I mean, the government here has a horrible record of telling everybody government finances are like your home finances. And if you were uh, terribly indebted at home, you would get in trouble. So the government owes so much money, so we need to reduce the level of debt. No, you don't. No, you don't. Home finances and state finances have as much in common as a hedgehog and an elephant. They're both mammals, yes, I hope, but they got really nothing to do with each other, yeah? So when you hear that sort of thing, it just spreads confusion, and it has got nothing to do with the reality of how economics works in practice. So we've talked about the why we have markets and the reason why people or entities will not will want to participate in markets and the difference that that makes. 
Now, as we are dealing here with banking and finance, perhaps it's a good idea to have like a quick run through what we mean by a bank. Let's think about the different types of banks that we have available. This is probably stuff that you've come across before in the things that you did, uh, either in the past or the things that you did in the previous terms. So what, what sort of banks do we have? What sort of types of banks do we have available? You have banks that are specialized in dealing with consumers on the retail level. You've got banks that specialize in helping businesses do various things because business banking is quite distinct from consumer banking. And then you've got the investment bank. Now, the stuff that you see around you, that you're going to see them around for a little while longer and then they're all going to go because all the retail banking now takes place online. And... The banks enjoy online banking. Why? In the very few occasions, uh, you need to go in personally sometimes to prove ID, but that usually happens once when you first open the account. You might go in to deposit cash into an account if you came back from home with your suitcases full of money. For money laundering, those of you who have done money laundering, you probably know this, money laundering legislation enables the banks to challenge the customer when the customer deposits above a certain amount and they will not release that amount in advance. So this changes regularly and every bank has its own thing. So if you bring back from home the equivalent of £10,000 in foreign currency or £10,000 in sterling, you better go to the bank and put it in little by little. Now, they do not really care. Because sometimes they don't challenge people for things that should be challenged. For instance, a friend of mine gets married in Greece, comes back here with 40,000 euros in the pocket, goes to NatWest, just, can you change this and put it into the account? They gotta go, okay. They didn't even ask him when you got the money. The random dude walks in with 40,000 euros, right? I don't care. No, I went into uh, Citibank back in the day where Citibank used to have branches in the UK, and I had with me 3,000 euros. And I said, I want those. I didn't want to change them. I had a euro account. I said, I want those deposited in my euro account. They go, how much is that? They say 3,000. They go, ah, no, no. It's too much. Uh, can you tell us where you got it from? Uh, mind your own damn business. I'm not telling you where I got it from. It's mine. Okay, in that case, go to the ATM and feed them in little by little. <laughs> That's how much they care, right? Because normally they should have said, oh, no, sorry, mate, you know, we asked. You cannot provide the receipt from where you got the money, like an exchange shop, uh, withdrawal from another account or so, or invoice how you earned it. In that case, we cannot have it, sorry. And then you would need to go the next day and hope you don't run into the same person. But for them to say... Uh, yeah, okay, you cannot prove where you got it, just feed it in at 500 at the time at the ATM. It's just making a mockery of the whole process. In any event, depositing cash, depositing a check perhaps, even though that you can do remotely too, proving ID, or if you're dealing with some sort of messed up bureaucracy back home and you need a physical paper proving something in relation to your bank account, these are the very few occasions in which you might walk into a bank and they don't want you there. That's why you will walk into places like NatWest and walk in, and it's like John Travolta in that med. 
you don't know where to go. There's nobody there. There's a few of the employees kind of hiding behind curtains and stuff. There's no desk anywhere. So you don't know what the hell you're doing, right? And when you ask them what the hell is this, they go, ah, yeah, no, it's an uh, open plan and you get serviced. You get serviced by boom, there's nobody here. So basically, the place is filled with like people in their 90s kind of crawling around asking for somebody for help. A few tramps that go in where it's cold outside. And that's it. That's what the bank presence does. So they should all shut down. And the, the plan is they should, they're, they're trying to shut them down. And by giving a horrible customer experience, they make sure that no customer in their right mind is going to be bothered when they shut them down. But that's a retail bank. So most of the retail banking now has passed on to online mobile banking and all the rest of it. Commercial banking also predominantly takes place online, but it's focused on assisting businesses in doing things, setting up business accounts, uh, dealing with invoicing accounts, uh, they can uh, help you get business loans, tap into some government pro uh, programs, produce documentation that you might need for returns to HMRC, um, all of that stuff. Investment banking is quite, and this is where things get a little bit more complex. And that's why the people who work in investment banking, they're all these skinny white dudes that get paid a lot of money and they don't tell anybody what they do. What they primarily do is deal with the paperwork. So the things that we're going to see when we look at the process for listing in a stock market, the process for issuing uh, various financial assets into marketplaces or getting certain deals done that require authorization uh, by some regulator, what the investment bank does is it assists the people who are trying to access financial markets with all the regulatory requirements and all the paperwork that they need to put in place in order to access those markets. Sometimes they act on behalf of clients. On occasion, they act as investors by themselves, but this is what they do. So the people who run these things, because they are things of higher complexity at much higher price margins with significant costs, they're also not allowed to tell you what they do. So... I, you know, I spent years being upset that I knew all these people and I didn't have a clue what they do for a living because the moment they asked them what they do, they would just climb up and they go, I thought they were all gangsters. <laughs> it turns out that it's just not allowed to say. Yep. Um, so this is what an investment bank will primarily do. And we can look at some of the details of that stuff later on. The central bank is something else. It's perhaps, perhaps misleading that it is called a bank. Because that type of banking that has to do with the sort of control of the money supply and monetary stability has very little to do with any type of market-focused banking that all the other types of banks. A central bank is there to control the money. So a central bank is tasked with controlling availability of money in the economy issues of liquidity, stability of the currency, um, and financing the government. This is primarily what they do. The Bank of England, for instance, is responsible for controlling the money supply in the UK. How do they do this? Through interest rates. So they look at the amount of money that is available and circulating into the economy. If there is too much money available, if there's too much loose activity, it generates inflationary pressures. 
inflation above a certain level is not a good thing because it eats away at the value of financial assets. So if that's what's going on, they increase interest rates, which reduces economic activity, reduces availability of money, and calms things down. If the government needs money, then they can lend the government money. This is what we mean when we say that the, the central bank is allowed to print money. This is another area where your personal understanding of money and assets and financial value departs from what's happening at those levels in those marketplaces. Because for us, money is something tangible and something not flexible. I get paid the amount of money I get paid every month, and I've got expenses, and this is not debatable. I mean, if I have a bill at Tesco, I cannot tell them anything about the nature of the markets today or the value of sterling. It's still a bill I have to pay at Tesco. And it's something that needs to be settled immediately. So money is not a flexible concept for me. And I cannot generate additional money by borrowing at zero cost if I felt like it. But the central bank can create money. Back in the day, they used to physically print more money. It's a very interesting concept, right? Everybody accepted the paper notes to be money. They could just make more of them and it was fine. And the only limit to that was that if they did too much of it, then it would eventually create inflationary pressures because too much money would be circulating into the economy and things, the prices of everything would start going up because there was just so much money. What the central bank does now is that it can credit the government account with money. So it's a loan, but it's effectively free because it's a it either zero interest or very low interest loan that gets renewed forever. So it technically increases the amount of government debt, but since this is a source of endless money that the Bank of England can simply create at the press of a bottle, nobody has to worry about. Again, the only limitation to this is inflation pressures in the long run. And the central bank can do this for private businesses as well. Uh, during the crisis and up until recently, there were programs where the, the central banks were investing directly into businesses by buying corporate bonds. So again, they were crediting the accounts of those businesses, purchasing those bonds, and they would increase the availability of money into the economy at much less cost because there's always some cost, but much less cost than borrowing the same money in open markets from other third-party providers. And the central banks are integrated into the financial planning of each government in different ways. Usually in the West, the central banks have got independent decision-making structures, so they're tasked with controlling the money supply and maintaining inflation within certain bands, and the way they do this, they decide for themselves. Now, a lot of people have a problem with this because what you do with inflation has got very significant consequences in the way that the economy operates. It's got effects in employment and all the rest of the stuff that affect people's lives. So a lot of people have an issue with the central bank as an independent body making decisions that have got significant political effects on the populations. And they're arguing that these decisions should go through the government that's got a democratic mandate to make those decisions. This sounds interesting in theory, but in practice, 
I think you can trust the politicians less than you can trust the central banks. Because what happened is that historically, every time we were coming close to an election, when the politicians were in control of things like inflation and all, and all the rest of it, they would manipulate the economy to manipulate economic indicators to make people feel happier about the government when an election was nearer. But then after they got re-elected, there would be an adjustment that would cause uh, significant economic damage. So leaving control of the money supply and, and uh, ex interest rates, leaving those at the control of politicians who've got political objectives that not necessarily align with the good of the country and the health of the economy is as dangerous as saying that a bunch of non-elected bureaucrats are determining very significant parts of economic governance. So whatever you do, there's a problem. So the choice is made in every country. Do you trust your politicians enough to let them do these things or not? Now, considering the quality of politicians we've got in most places, it's probably a better idea that some, you know, professor who's an unelected bureaucrat is in charge of these things rather than the latest fascist we did we decided to elect to uh, to be a PM. Yeah, when when we say that the central bank controls the money supply, it doesn't mean that the central banker puts the money in his own personal pocket. Yes, it's more like he controls it for for the rest of the economy. Whether there was an external limitation on the ability of a central bank to print money historically. Money was interpreted as a reflection of something that was itself perceived to be valuable. Now, gold is perceived to be valuable. Can you eat gold? You shouldn't. In the zombie movies, the people who have stolen the gold eventually end up throwing it at the zombies. They still get eaten. Yes. Now, gold doesn't really help you with much. Gold is considered a precious metal because it looks pretty, because we've been using it since antiquity to make jewelry and things, because it will not degrade, which is a significant element if you want something that is long-lasting. And now it's got technological applications. It's used in microchips and conductors and things like this because it's a good conductor for electricity. But apart from that, there is nothing to say that gold in itself should be perceived as more valuable than titanium or diamonds or something else that does not naturally degrade the ease. For that matter, a plastic bottle is probably going to outlive uh, a nugget of gold. <laughs> so we could, you know, hang plastic bottles around that. So people took a decision that they considered gold to be valuable. And because it's been happening for thousands of years, when state authorities or powerful entities that control spaces began to issue currency, they issued it in gold or other semi-precious metals. The problem with gold is that it creates an artificial constraint to the money supply, simply because there's a limit to the amount of gold in existence, and there's a limit to people's capacity to extract gold from the ground in order to make golden nuggets. Having an external constraint on supply is a safety measure against inflation. Because if you represent the paper currency that we have now into an amount of gold, 
then if you run out of gold, if like say one ounce of gold creates a hundred paper pounds, that's it. If you want to print another hundred thousand, uh, another hundred uh, paper pounds, you need to find another uh, ounce of gold. So if you stop finding gold, you cannot produce paper currency. This worked for a while, but then it didn't, primarily because the costs of the reconstruction effort after the Second World War were so significant that having an external constraint on liquidity would have been a disaster. It would have delayed funding for reconstruction for decades. So most countries after the Second World War abandoned the link between gold and paper currency. Nobody does this anymore. We do not have an external constraint into the central bank's ability to create money. And the old constraint that was availability of gold is not relevant anymore. The people who say, if we went back to the gold standard, as it was called, we would be able to control the economy because we would control money supply and we, we wouldn't have issues, are ignorant of the way a modern economy functions. So, yes, we can go back to the gold standard or any constraint. You know, I mean, we could have these precious metals that we now use to make uh, microchips that, you know, we don't have enough of and we're worried that the Chinese are hogging the lot and then we won't be able to make phones anymore. So we could use those instead. The thing is, this would shrink the availability of money and shrink the size of our economy, which wouldn't help anybody. Usually the people who argue for these things, they've got the stupid impression that the rich people, there would be less super rich people if there was less money around. No, there wouldn't. The super rich people would still be super rich. There would just be less money around for the rest of us. Yeah. So there's a reason why we moved away from external constraints to the money supply and there's a reason why we don't use gold anymore and even though there's a lively debate amongst the ignorant unfortunately uh, we really shouldn't go back but all of these things all, all of this misinformation and debates are there because they push for particular political agendas so where, and it's usually the extremes of the political spectrum. The far left has a problem with capitalism and rich people. So they're thinking if we dismantle the kind of fundamental parts of the machinery of capitalism, then we stick it to the man and we can go back to a more communitarian no, bullshit. We're going to go back to chasing each other with sticks, right? That, that's not how this stuff works. The far right is catching onto any narrative that appears to have popular appeal, usually amongst the ignorant and frustrated, and then they go with it. They don't care. They, they, that's the important thing. Now, the, the left usually cares about what they say, but they misunderstand what's going on or they misunderstand the consequences. The far right really does not care what it talks about. It only cares that it gets an audience. No, they hate migrants, they hate foreign people, they hate the central bank, they hate the liberal elite, they hate intellectuals. By the same measure, they would hate ferrets, cats, kittens, puppies, pillows, duvets, 
and modern forms of transport if this is what people on Twitter were upset about. They really don't care what the talking point is. They just care that there seems to be some frustration on social media about any particular issue. You know, today it's migrants, tomorrow it could be clowns. Nobody cares. They're just using it to bring themselves up to the stake. The effect, unfortunately, on the population is that subjected to all this intense debate, people who don't know much about those subjects, they get the feeling that there's something wrong, there's something going on, uh, they have misinformed about something, and when they feel that they're living in an unfair, unequal society, a, a semi-convincing narrative like the hedge funders are ruining the place and stealing everybody's money and running around laughing while the place is burning, this could be stopped if we dismantled their economic system by doing something like going back to the gold standard, it sounds plausible. If you want more of these types of debate, talk to any elderly relative when you go back home. Because globally now, everybody's parents and grandparents are listening to radio shows by some deranged right-wing guy, and they all have got the same talking point. So it doesn't matter which country you're coming from, talk to your grandfather and you'll get some information on the gold standard. Now, one last thing about stock markets. Stock markets specifically, because we're talking about various types of markets in various domains. So far, I've been talking about capital markets, which is mostly where people exchange financial assets. They sell and buy debt and all of these. things. Stock markets are a little bit easier to understand because this is where we said publicly listed corporations make themselves available to the wider public so you can become a part owner of these businesses by buying uh, some of their shares. It's not obligatory to list your shares in the country where you're based. Most British companies are listed in the London Stock Exchange, but they could list in a foreign stock exchange if they wanted to, do, and the exchange there allows them to do so. So there are a lot of Chinese companies listed in American exchanges. This is participation in an exchange. It means that you have gained yourself the right to put a stall in a particular marketplace. So whether I'm in the marketplace in Hammersmith or whether I'm in the marketplace in Chelsea, it doesn't really change the nature of what is going on. It just means that the people in that marketplace were happy to accept me to be part. So not only... There are multiple stock exchanges worldwide where businesses can offer them their shares for sale, but there could be different stock exchanges with different uh, clientele within the same country. So the London Stock Exchange, that is the main exchange in the UK, has next to it the uh, alternative investments market, which is something more for startups, technology enterprises, new things, like uh, usually businesses with smaller capitalization. In the London, London Stock Exchange, you've got more established businesses. Do not confuse the stock exchange with the indicators. So FTSE, NASDAQ, uh, all of that stuff, those names are not the stock exchanges themselves. They are a collection of a basket of shares that the newspapers usually put together that give you an indication by looking at their prices every day, they give you an indication as to whether they feel positive about the stock market or not. So the FTSE is the top 100 companies, the 10 100 biggest companies uh, in the London Stock Exchange. It's not all of them together. So you can get various statistics, but 
when you're reporting in the press, it's not very meaningful to just say the totality of the stock market did like this today. It's usually better if you have a selection of enterprises that are fairly have something common to them that you use this as a proxy for understanding of how things were. Yeah. It's like, you know, telling people about the weather. You can tell about the weather broadly about the whole country. Maybe this doesn't really help that much. Maybe you would like to know the weather in the Southeast specifically because that tells you more about what the weather might be like in London. One of the things that people misunderstand about the stock market is the idea of value and the idea of market capitalization. This creates no end of confusion because you get these headlines that say, oh, today, three million pounds has been wiped off the stock market. Do you remember? You don't remember because you weren't here, maybe. Last autumn, something fun happened. We had, for a brief period of time, this lady for a prime minister called Liz Truss. Now, what has happened? The Conservative Party that seems to be in power here has a thinning pool of available people to do stuff. It's like a football team after COVID. It's like you have a football team that's doing okay, and then the top players leave, the rest of them die from COVID. Some have been shot and murdered, and you know, the rest broke their legs. So, who do you have sitting on the bench? Who made whoever still has got two legs and a heart? Right? This is the conservative part. So, you know, the ranks have been filling as people have been dropping off. So, you were left with probably the last person there who was least trust. She appointed some dude for Chancellor that nobody had ever heard before. We thought, ah, how bad can it get that all together? Really, you know, I mean, they don't really have any ideas other than hitting migrants. We're going to be fine. But we were wrong. Because they went and announced a series of measures that completely freaked out everybody because they wanted to cut taxes. So they came out and said, we're going to have all these measures. We're going to cut taxes. It's going to improve growth. We're going to be awesome. Oh, and when people said, oh, that's terrific, but if you cut all those taxes, it represents like a catastrophic loss of income in the government budget. How are you going to make up for this? Like, we're going to borrow the money. No problem. Like, you're going to borrow the money from whom? I don't know. We are British. People are going to be chewing to throw money at us. So the markets heard that nonsense. And they kind of went, oh, yeah, we'll throw money at you the same way we threw money at Greece with 12% interest rate. And then the whole thing kind of fell apart. And it caused like a major financial crisis and just everybody panicked. And amongst this, you had all these headlines that said, you know, three trillion pounds have been wiped off the stock market. What does that actually mean? They did it. Because what happens in the stock market is that you have an indication of what the price might be on the basis of the few shares that have transacted. Not all the shares So if I've got a hundred shares and the price for my shares today is three pounds a share, two or three people have sold their shares. And they sold their shares at two pounds a share. It means that while yesterday the going price for my share was three pounds, today the going price for my share is two pounds. So I've lost like one pound per share. None of the shares have actually transacted apart from a few. 
but the going price, if somebody wanted to buy one today, would be two rather than three. It means that I've lost, in terms of market capitalization, which is today's price multiplied by the number of shares, I've lost one-third of the value. It's a disaster on paper because nothing has actually happened. So this is another thing that contributes to misunderstandings as to what's happening in financial spaces. When the prices drop in the stock market, it's an indication on what has happened on the day and what people are feeling happy about and feeling unhappy about and what the likely price would be. We don't even know that's real, right? But that, what, that is what the likely price would be if people wanted to transact. And that then multiplied by the total number of shares gives you a total value for the stock. So sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but not the real value has been generated and the real value has not been lost. The value is nailed down when the share actually transacts, when people have bought and sold. It's exactly the same way of going, oh my God, I went by the petrol station and today the diesel is up 10 cents. What are we going to do? Did you fill the tank? No. I've got a full tank. I don't need to refuel for another six months. So it's like, then why are you panicking about it? I don't know. It just looks bad. So all this stuff about market capitalization is an indication of feeling in the stock market. And feeling in the stock market is an indication of the health of the overall economy. And the stock market is like a herd of uh, sheep. You know, sometimes they get spooked by something. Change. And then he used to go have lunch, right? And everybody thinks, oh my God, he's changing something. And then the stock market drops and says, panic. Um, but nothing has really happened. Yeah. Now, of course, a, a continuously dropping stock market suggests that you have some issues in your economy. People are worried about the value of businesses or if everybody's trying to sell their stock and they're willing to accept ever lowering prices, that's a bad idea, right? It shows that there's trouble coming up but nothing actually happens till people transact on those shares. So the whole point of the stock markets is that businesses put their shares available and they generate money out of this. Now, final point about the operation of stock markets is the distinction between primary and secondary markets. Primary market is the first exchange. When a company lists in the stock market for the first time, or makes available a new set of shares for the first time. When people buy it, the money comes to the company. The first time. This is when you're going to need an investment bank to help you with the paperwork when you're listing a new product in the stock. But beyond that point, after you buy from the originator, that they put the money in the pocket, you can then sell to one of your friends. The money changes between you two. It doesn't go back to the company. So all the transactions that happen in the secondary market do not involve the company itself. The company doesn't win or lose any money. So in essence, the company got its money the first time it sold the shares. It does not really matter what the price of the shares is thereafter because people are transacting with each other. So they're winning or losing money depending on the price as they're selling to each other. The company doesn't care. The company does its own thing. So do not get the impression that a drop in market capitalization suggests a problem for the company directly. If the company has done something wrong and everybody gets spooked and they try to get rid of the shares, then it's a good indication for the board of directors that people have worked out they're doing something wrong. 
But if the value of everybody falls because of external economic factors, the people who run the company are not concerned about this. They're not going to change something about what they do simply because their value is dropping because the overall stock market is dropping. And the company does not lose any money or win any money by secondary market transactions. Now, why do we have stock markets? The reason that we have stock markets is the same reason we have anything at all, because an open market for the exchange of these things improves availability of assets, allows seller to meet buyer, improves the speed and quality and quantity of transactions. There's a lot of legislation that comes to inform how stock markets open. Uh, this is usually under MIFID, which is the Market in Financial Instruments Directive. This uh, came out like some time ago and has got different impressions. So we had like first and second versions of it and they keep going at it to try and improve it because any sort of regulatory framework for financial instruments needs to keep up with financial innovation. So if you're looking and you're going to see this information from your books, if you're looking at the European regulatory framework for the way stock markets operate, you're going to have to look at this information in MIFID and the various regulations and directives that have to do with access to the stock market. Now, why are we so concerned about regulating access to those marketplaces? Because we don't want to be in a place that we were in the Victorian era. Crypto is precisely the exact opposite of whatever we understand about modern financial markets. It is non-transparent. It's totality. You don't know who owns the asset. You don't know even the characteristics of the asset. It's in exchanges that are not safe. You cannot even liquidate those assets when you feel like it. The whole thing is a cesspool of mess. However, it has taken over the world. This is exactly what was happening in the Victorian era, where there was no regulation of the operation of exchanges and the creation of financial products, where people would advertise in the newspapers, participate in a profit-making endeavor, and people would just sell them money. Like, it's a, it's a total scam. It's like, you know, listening to a, um, uh, to a preacher who says, you know, if you, if you pay to my church, then I will guarantee entry into heaven. It's that kind of stuff. No, people were, people were saying, we're running a very profitable business overseas. And you need to come to Greg's. You don't need to know the details. The people went, about, huh? Totally. And you're thinking, this is so stupid. Why did people do it? They did it because most of those were pyramid schemes. That the first people who got on, they would get good payouts. And they were thinking, oh, I know that guy who made money. I know that guy who made money. And I know that guy. So I've got to get in there quick because this thing pays well. i got to get in before everybody figures this out and it runs up. And of course, when enough volume was there, these companies collapsed because there was nothing behind. Quick tip. When you take an Uber and your driver starts giving you investment advice, 
you know that the game is up. Yeah. When people in the bus stop are exchanging tips on uh, on investment and which shares to buy, you need to blow up capital. And this happens again and again and again. It happens in all the countries. In Greece, it happened in 99. The stock market suddenly started doing very well. It was all a total scam, which was totally obvious to everybody. Because, you know, we live in the country. We know what it's like. So suddenly we attained like a Western level stock market that was operating efficiently. Right. However, it didn't, ma- it didn't matter that it was a scam. Everybody knew it was a scam, but they saw the people getting the payouts and they thought, let's get in there where it lasts. So everybody in the country stopped working and everybody was sitting watching the Bloomberg Federals on the price of the shares and all these grandfathers with the kind of, you know, the stick that you got to hit the goats. Stake, beard, castle, phone to the stockbroker. I think this thing is so ridiculous. When it blows up, the guy lose their shells off their back, and they did. And they deserve to do so. And I had told them, because I was a student at the time, and various relatives would call me and say, Oh, you being abroad knowing about that stuff, uh, what do you think about these shares? They, you guys are all idiots. And this is a total scam, and you're getting ripped off. And they kind of went, eh, oh yeah, whatever. And they went with a plastic bag full of cash and gave it to the stockbroker. My dad still hasn't recovered the shares that he bought in 99. That is the reason why these markets are regulated. Because the potential for people to be scammed is so high, and even though... <coughs> Governments generally don't talk, uh, don't care about poor people. They don't care. They only care if the big people get into trouble because then they have to hear about it, or their supporters stop supporting. Normally, they don't care about the general population, but they care about the general population when everybody gets into trouble. Because if everybody gets into trouble, everybody goes queuing outside the bank to get their money in a panic, and then the whole thing falls apart. In order for these things not to happen, some stuff that are considered highly dangerous, like what people do with their money, with their savings and so on, are protected. The stock market is the primary avenue for normal people to engage in some type of investment. Normal people on the retail level do not access more sophisticated financial products directly. They, they access them through intermediaries. Either they buy some sort of financial product or they buy um, a mutual uh, trust or through their pension fund or through their employer, some contribution, something like this. But they don't directly participate in the higher level financial markets. But people by themselves participate in the stock market. Either you've got an investment product that contains shares or you buy shares directly or you buy some other sort of product by a normal retail bank that allows you to invest. And these are usually a good idea because they offer better returns than your average um, savings account, especially during the period, the very long period we had where the interest rates were very, very low. Because so many people participate and because so much wealth of the nation is invested into the stock market and because the stock market is such a significant contributor to investment to business so business can operate effectively we need to be careful about what goes in so 
all these directives and regulations at European level set out those rules as to what one needs to do to be admitted into a stock market. And to gain the right for a corporation that is of the type that is allowed to be in the stock market, still to gain the right to issue some product in there, you need to go through a very thorough process. For every type of asset that you're offering, you need to create a portfolio of information. And this is why I was telling you my banker friends are unhappy because to comply with all this regulation, even though the nature of your product can be explained in five pages, there's another 500 pages behind it of legal documentation. Will anybody read the legal documentation? No. For the same reason, you guys never read the terms and conditions of anything. You always click the thing that says, yes, I've read this, I don't care. But the important thing is that you're given the opportunity if you wish. And the position of the regulator is, we need to provide the public the opportunity to inform themselves when they make these decisions. If they've got the tools available and they choose not to look at it, then that's their problem. But again, it's a systemic level. The vast majority of the population wouldn't just simply, we hope, go throw its money away without reading the terms and conditions. The whole population will not actually behave in such a reckless manner, it is hope, but also by putting all this cost and bureaucracy in launching it, it prevents most of the scammers. So if, if you need heavy duty advice and you have to spend a great deal of money to access those markets, your average scammer will not do it. So it's, it protects at both ends. It protects both the consumer because it gives them the opportunity to learn more about what's going on, but it also protects the system itself by increasing the barrier uh, that, you know, the thieves have to jump to get in and steal your stuff. The level at which these barriers are set is open to debate. Some countries are more lax, some countries are not. Now, the European space is not lax at all. And the UK, because these instruments are still applicable in the UK because they have not been changed after Brexit, it all remains operating on the same lines. It is very difficult to participate in these types of marketplaces with all the paperwork that is required. And the authorizations are very difficult to obtain. But once you've got them, as we said, at least in the European space, you've got access to an enormous market as the, the biggest market in the world. Other countries that are a little bit more loose about this, that's fine for them. And the important thing is having the information. So if you are happy to participate in marketplaces that go less transparency, that's fine. But we need to draw the limit somewhere. Right? And every society has its limits. For instance, why do they allow uh, cannabis in the United States? to be sold and consumed without any trouble because they decided this is not too much of a problem. Here, we pretend that it's a problem and we don't allow it, but the whole place reeks of uh, weed. The Americans don't think that that's, that's a problem. We think that it's a problem. Uh, at the same time, the Americans are not a good measure for anything. They think everybody having a gun in their pocket. What has happened with crypto, that a whole environment developed around shadow currencies and NFTs and all of these things, seemingly out of nowhere, and it became a big investment opportunity for the population, it violates every single one of the principles around which our financial markets are built. And it bothers nobody. Up until the point that, okay, it did bother people because a lot of people started losing money in this, and then the legislator thought, okay, this has gone too far, we need to do something about this. 
That's why it is an emerging activity amongst legislators in all the countries uh, to do something about cryptocurrency. Right. So as we said, if you are trying to access markets, then you need to create a prospectus. And this is a very heavily regulated area. The benefit of doing this in the EU space is that because of the EU financial passport, then an asset that is made available then has got wide reach to customers all over the union, um, which is a good benefit of this. Now, is it easier to have it approved in certain jurisdictions than others? It might be, but I think this is not due to differing requirements because everybody's requirements are aligned. It has to do with the efficiency of the bureaucracy in different stock exchanges. And as you very well know, the state administration and these types of operations have got really different behaviors from one country to the next. So listing in the London Stock Exchange might be a more streamlined process than trying to list shares in Athens or, you know, in one of the peripheral countries. But I, I don't think this is this is the primary reason why people choose markets. People usually choose markets on the basis of the volume of transaction. So if you're a big if you're a big company trying to access a Western market, it makes sense to list in a major Western stock market because then you have more potential investors available than listing in a peripheral country that's got very low volume of trading. Specific information about the way the UK regulatory environment deals with that stuff are in instruments like the Financial and Services Markets Act in, in its various interpretations, but there's no reason for us at this juncture to kind of go through that in any great detail. 